Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast, and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 55, While Shepherds Watched. Last time, I discussed the locations of the English cycle plays, and now it's time to move on to look at the details of some of the plays and see all the points I've discussed over the last few episodes in action. The second Shepherd's play from the Wakefield cycle is almost universally held to be the best example of the genre, so it's the example I'm going to use too. But I'm going to start with the less often mentioned first Shepherd's play. This play is almost entirely ignored in summaries of the genre, which I think is a bit unfair. It is harder to get under the skin of the first play than the second, but it still has merits and interesting points, and at the very least it's interesting to see why it's not considered the masterpiece that the second play is, and deservedly so. But first, we have to at least consider why we have two Shepherd's plays in the same cycle. As you might have guessed, there's no certain answer, and much differing opinion from academics, given the uncertain provenance of the collection of plays that we have. Several theories have been put forward. It's possible that the second play is a replacement for the first, but the collected plays as we have them have, for some unknown reason, retained both versions. Everyone agrees that the second play is a significant improvement on the first, but neither can be so accurately dated as to confirm which was written first, and from the text there's no direct link between them. So however much they may share some themes and style, they don't appear to have been created as a pair. Others have suggested that the plays are offered as alternatives, either to be played on alternate years or at the discretion of the producing guild. A third possibility is that the first play closed day one of the performances and the second play opened day two. Stylistically, the language used dates from the mid-15th century, by which time the Wakefield cycle was probably being performed over three days. So this is also a reasonable possibility, although it's unclear why such a repetition would have been felt necessary. Perhaps the most interesting theory comes from Rosemary Wolfe in her 1972 work on the plays, where she suggests that the first play was from a standard production, with the second play being performed where it was felt that the audience, or maybe a specific section of it, were considered to be of an intellectual calibre so as they might appreciate the religious orientation behind the farce. It is undoubtedly the most sophisticated of the two plays, but the first play also includes references that expect a degree of biblical knowledge. Looking at both plays from a performance point of view, it's the lack of dramatic action in the first play that distinguishes it from the second, rather than the extent of the religious metaphors used in each. Some commentators even go so far as to describe the first play as a dramatic extended poem, which gains little by performance, which is something that definitely cannot be said about the second play. So once again, we have a little medieval mystery that we can't resolve. What is generally accepted is that both plays share features from earlier York plays and show the hand of the Wakefield master in their creation, either as the sole author or as a significant adapter of earlier works. Like the second Wakefield play and Shepherd's plays from other cycles, the first Wakefield play deals with the appearance of the angel announcing the birth of Jesus and the visit to the stable in Bethlehem. So far, so biblical nativity – but both Wakefield plays do significantly more than retell the Nativity story. They both divide into sections whereby the Nativity is held somewhat apart from earlier sections that are comic, farcical and even absurdist. This gives the Nativity the reverence it deserves as a significant part of the culmination of God's plan, 
but still allows for the author of the plays to engage in some social commentary and have some fun with low characters. In the first Shepherd's play, the biblical story part of the play doesn't start until we are well into the second half of the play, with everything before that being set in a world that is both festive and absurdist. But this first section does have religious messages entwined with a seemingly crazy narrative. Structurally, the play consists of three long monologues, one for each shepherd, the adaptation of two illustrative myths, a scene involving an unlikely feast, and the final nativity narrative section. The first of the illustrative myths is borrowed from a well-known legend called The Fools of Gotham. This features a shepherd who's on his way to market when a man on a bridge tells him he will not allow him to pass when he returns with his purchased sheep. The two men quarrel, as if they already had sheep, until a third man arrives. In an attempt to mediate the quarrel, he empties a bag of feed into the river to show that the two men have as much sense as he now has feed in his sack. The story is designed to question wisdom and folly. After all, in this case, the man who presents himself as the wisest of the three has lost the most. The legend originates from around the early 13th century, where the story goes that the villagers of Gotham feigned stupidity to dissuade King John from visiting during a royal progress, as the expense involved in such a visit would have ruined the village and left the residents starving. This is one of a number of tales of the seemingly pointless and particularly stupid undertakings of the villagers, which, by the way, was successful. When the king heard of the strange antics in the villages from his messengers, he decided to go elsewhere. In this only lightly adapted version, two of the shepherds chase non-existent sheep around the stage. The idea of foolishness that comes from the shepherd's version of this story is appropriate to the plays, which, as we have already seen, owe some of their heritage to events like the Feast of Fools and the feast days around Christmas time that allowed for reversals of social and ecclesiastical positions. This story is closely linked with Christmas, so the associations with feasting, celebrations and role reversals would have been easily seen by the audience. The theme of wisdom and foolishness is present from the opening of the play. The first monologue, delivered by the shepherd Gibb, emphasises the difficulty of gaining true wisdom. Life is full of twists and turns that can be dramatic and unexpected. Gibb's sense of the world being in constant flux against the certainties of God's world is almost overwhelming for him. This is a major theme of the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible. You may be familiar with an early verse that sums up the writer's position. Vanity of vanities, all is futile. What profit hath a man for all his toil when he toils under the sun? The rest of that book expounds on that position where the value of wise or foolish lives is questioned, given that both wise and foolish men ultimately die. Wisdom can lead to a well-lived earthly life, but the author sees no eternal meaning in it. If life is senseless, he argues that man should live lives for simple pleasures, such as food and drink, and finding pleasure in work, all of which are God's gifts. The book concludes with the following verse. Fear God and keep his commandments, for that is the all of mankind. Since every deed will bring the judgment of God for every hidden act, be it evil or good. In the play, the poor shepherds expound on the meaningless and confusion of life, and the solution they find is the certainty of their faith in God's plan. The three sermon-like speeches also suggest that the shepherds may have been seen as priestly characters. 
The association of Jesus as the Lamb of God and therefore priests as shepherds was already well established since the earliest days of the church and was probably a very obvious connection for the audience. They use Latin phrases, speak blessings and quote freely from the scriptures, so much so that their servant Jack Garcio accuses them of being so learned that they must be priests. John Horne, the second shepherd, embarks on a sermon-like monologue that follows the typical pattern of medieval sermons. First, he establishes his theme, that Christ saves us all from mischief, meaning robbers or oppressors. He then gives specific examples and shows how they relate to one or other of the deadly sins. Here, he focuses on wrath, covetousness, sloth and pride, with the emphasis being on pride. Pride, leading to the folly of man in general, links all three monologues, the last of which is delivered by Slawpaw, the third shepherd. Thematically, his section links back to Gibbs' opening, so we can see clear intention in the author's approach. With all three shepherds being equated to both priests and fools, the sense of absurd reversals is clear, and their topsy-turvy world continues when they ask Jack the servant to prepare some food. This, for some, is the heart of the problem with the play. A large and eclectic feast is produced, seemingly out of nowhere. Gibb provides a cow's foot, pork sausage and mutton. John Horne has brawn, made from boar, two pig snouts, cooked oxtail, hair with its loin missing, and even a meat pie. It's as if they're in competition to prove what they can provide, and Slawpaw comes up with a goose leg, pork in a tart, roast chicken, partridge, and grilled calf's liver. They also enjoy good ale, at which point they fall into a satisfied sleep to be woken by the angel announcing the birth of Jesus sometime later. Now, not only is this meal well beyond the means of poor shepherds, but it's a ridiculous mix of delicacies, and many have argued could not have been shown on stage. This has to be an imaginary feast. As a theatrical device, the miming of eating of food is not particularly effective, but a good argument is made for the imaginary nature of the feast when we think back to the first part of the play, where an empty sack of feed features in the argument over imaginary sheep and the sermonising on the transient nature of existence when compared with the absolute certainty of salvation with God through Jesus. Thematically and theologically, this is an extension of the sermon that works, but there is a counter-argument. When we think back to stage effects, stage sets and costuming, we can see that little expense was spared to actually show miracles, angels, celestial bodies and devils on stage. Wherever possible, representation on stage was literal. Why, the argument goes, should this scene be any different just because it sounds really difficult to put together? Safe to assume, I think, that the first time someone from a guild asked a designer to represent hell on stage, they probably thought that would be, well, challenging. Is this really so different that we should assume that it was an imagined feast? Within this play itself, the shepherd's references to the star of Bethlehem clearly indicate that a prop star was used. This suggests that referencing to something like a feast in its absence would have been an anomaly within the genre, and some way was found to represent the food effectively. And as absurd as the list of food sounds to us, endless hours of scholarly input have argued that, contrary to some earlier criticism, the foodstuffs would have been recognised at the time as the genuine article, albeit a strange mix of food that was enjoyed by the wealthy and the poor, but not on the same table. A shepherd would have rarely, if ever, enjoyed some of the meats, but offal, like cow's foot, was a poor man's food. 
Goose leg may be a joke about not having the whole bird, but poultry was served roasted and carved, so goose leg is a genuine dish. Pig snout wasn't eaten, but would have been part of the, the complete roasted pig that was common at feasts and village festivals shared amongst a big group of people. It's noted that the hare is served without its loin, which is the best meat on a hare, and would have been reserved for the aristocrats at the feast, where the leftover food, the rest of the hare, would have been passed down progressively to the lower social classes, the servants, and finally the poor and beggars, at the gates of the feasting hall. Some of those dishes have been traced to near-contemporary recipe books, again suggesting that this is realism with a comic twist, rather than otherworldly. So whether imagined or represented or real, the feast could be played for the joke of the poor workers imagining the feast as a means to establish the link to the Christmas season that resonated deeply at the time for foolery and role reversals, and as a reminder that the true sustenance came from spiritual fulfilment, not earthly pleasures. In fact, study of this piece has led to suggestions that these plays were not always performed as part of the Corpus Christi cycle in springtime, but as a bespoke season of Christmas plays. Given that some of the content of the feast would have been difficult to source in springtime, this seems reasonable. There is a focus in the plays on the build-up to the nativity and its aftermath. These plays could have been produced as a Christmas mini-cycle, and then some or all of them included in the Corpus Christi full cycle. I haven't been able to find any documentary evidence to support this theory, but it is an intriguing idea. So, there is plenty of interest in the first Shepherd's play but it fails to leap off the page and onto the stage. The same cannot be said for the second shepherd's play. The second shepherd's play fits conveniently into three sections, although there's no suggestion that they were conceived as individual acts in the way that would become common soon. The first part introduces three shepherds, each of whom have a soliloquy where they bemoan their lot in life. Cole, the first shepherd, complains about the weather and that he's always either cold or wet or both, thanks to his poor thin clothing. He blames his poverty on the rich landowners who hold him hamstrung in his condition. He then expands his blame to the landowner's overseer, who interferes in the way the shepherds manage the land and animals but adds no value himself. The overseer, as far as Cole is concerned, is also a block to his own advancement out of his lowly position, which is close to abject poverty. So clearly, Cole is just an employed labourer, not the owner of the land or livestock. He ends his speech on the more cheerful note that his fellow shepherds will soon arrive, and he takes comfort in knowing that these men share his lonely life. Gibb enters, and without noticing Cole, also laments the foul weather. The bitter wind makes his eyes water, and his poor shoes are frozen to his feet. His hard life is made worse, he says, by his nagging wife. He compares marriage to a prison and spends a lengthy passage extolling the benefits of a bachelor life and wallowing in regret. Catching himself, he says that regrets after the event are pointless and young men would better avoid marriage in the first place. He speaks of his own wife in disparaging tones, saying that she has bristles like a pig and a fixed bitter expression at all times. If only he'd had the sense to keep running in the opposite direction on his wedding day. At this point, Cole interjects, presumably directed to the audience, asking God to watch over the onlookers who have had to put up with this tirade about Gibb's wife and marriage in general. Gibb asks if Cole has seen the third shepherd, Dor, who then enters without noticing his two friends. He too complains about the weather, comparing the rain to the great flood. Its only benefit, he says, is that all men are equal in bad weather. 
When the other shepherds tell Dor that he's late and has missed sharing the food that they have, he says that he intends to work as little as he is being paid, so not much. To cheer themselves up, they sing a song. The second part of the play follows on immediately and is the longest part of the piece. Mac, a thief, comes on in disguise. His head is covered and he speaks in a southern dialect. As he complains about his continually crying children and despite his attempt at disguise, Gibb recognises him and warns the others to be on their guard. Mac tries to convince them that he's a yeoman on important business, but they're not fooled and make sure that their few possessions are close by. Mac says he's ill and hungry and will rest with the shepherds, and as they settle down, he tells of his wife, who he portrays as a lazy drunk who produces a child every year or two and someone who he would happily see dead. As sleep beckons, the shepherds arrange themselves so Mac is in the middle of the group and can't steal a sheep in the night without them noticing. But Mac is clever. When the others are asleep, he casts a spell over them and escapes to take a sheep. He carries the animal to his cottage and his wife, Jill, who is concerned that he'll be caught and hung. Just in case the cottage is searched, she says she will hide the sheep in the cradle, as if it were a newborn child and she'll take to her bed and moan and complain as if she's just given birth. Mac approves of the plan and returns to the sleeping shepherds, taking his place between them again. When they wake, Dor recounts a dream that involves the theft of a sheep. Mac says that he dreamed of his wife giving birth. He begins to take his leave, suggesting that the others search him for any stolen goods. When he is back in the cottage, Jill puts the sheep in swaddling bands and gets into bed with much pretend moaning. The shepherds have discovered the sheep is missing and they go to Mac's cottage immediately. They undertake a search, but although Dor says that the baby smells like a lamb, they don't find anything to incriminate Mac. Dor feels sorry for the baby and offers Mac some money for food, but also insists on seeing the baby. As soon as the baby is revealed, the ruse is uncovered, despite Mac's protestations that their baby has been swapped for a changeling. As a punishment, the shepherds toss Mac in a blanket and take the sheep back to the hillside. As they rest there, an angel appears to them and announces the birth of Christ. All the previous events are forgotten in their moment of awe. They're no longer concerned about the cold, hunger and their unhappy lives at home and know that they must go and see the child, despite the cold and their weary state. Gibb recalls the promise that a saviour will be born, who will cleanse the world of its sins, and they all agree to go and see him. The stage direction then simply states, they go to Bethlehem and enter the stable, without any mention of passage of time or a journey undertaken. Cole has bought cherries as an offering, Gibb a bird, and Dor a ball. Mary tells of the Immaculate Conception, and the play ends with the shepherds singing praise to the child. Perhaps more than any other play in the cycle, the individual characters stand out in the second shepherd's play. The three shepherds each have a similar soliloquy, but with quite subtle differences in each case. All speak in the local Yorkshire dialect, and this, and their complaints about the cold and the wet weather, place them as local and recognisable characters. Cole, the first shepherd to speak, takes a more political stance over his complaints than his fellow shepherds. He sees the social inequalities in the society he lives in, and then applies that to his personal situation. It is in his speech that there is a real sense of these men being in a poverty trap, where there is little chance to even complain about their lot, thanks to the overbearing power of the overseer and the social distance of the landowner. His hours are long and the rewards poor. 
Cole was probably played as an older shepherd, the senior of the three, so his words are particularly poignant. When Mac is revealed as the sheep stealer, it is Cole who decides on the lenient punishment, showing that he understands the teaching of forgiveness. The bulk of the second shepherd Gibbs soliloquy is on the state of marriage and the problems he sees with women. For Gibb, who's also an older shepherd, the problems in his life originate with women and specifically wives. He believes that wives oppress their husbands and his description of his own with the looks of a pig and the girth of a whale are unkind to say the least. This is undercut by Cole's interjection, so this isn't misogyny but comic in its intent, especially when we see later that Mac's wife, who he has also criticised in similar ways, is at least as sharp as her husband. Although it's not explicit, Dor is taken to be a young shepherd, as he's less world-weary than Gibb or Cole. He doesn't link his personal suffering with society in the same way that Cole does, and his views on women and marriage are more lenient. But he's no slouch, and he's quick to see that Mac was the thief, but he's also compassionate when he thinks that Mac's baby is suffering and tries to offer help. The repeated references to the poverty and social situation of the shepherds reflect on some issues of land management that were happening in the period. Changing economics meant that landowners went through a period where they let fertile lowlands lie fallow because they could make more money from sheep farming than from crop production. English wool was highly prized in continental markets, especially in Flanders, and wool was the country's major export during the late Middle Ages. These choices by the landowners, now known as the enclosures, led to tenant farmers being evicted from the land and losing their homes and livelihoods. In some cases, whole villages were destroyed to create sheep pastures and residents turned out. This in turn led to problems with gangs of vagrants roaming the countryside and travel becoming once again a dangerous pursuit. Those who could converted to becoming shepherds and, in many cases, had to endure the harsher upland conditions. Shepherds like Col and Dor were often abjectly poor and with no prospect of improving their situation. The demise of the feudal system was a long and complex process, tied in with various economic changes and the effects of plague every other generation or so, affecting the availability of workers and their relationship with their masters. And this is just a snapshot of one part of that that we have represented in this play. Cole reserves particular ire for the master's overseer, who, although he's just another servant of the master, has power over the shepherds, putting them well towards the lowest rungs of the social scale. Cole says the overseer can use force, saying that he can use what mattery he must, and that he can make purveyance or seize any property belonging to the tenants. When they go to Mac's cottage, they see that there is no meat, fresh or preserved, but only empty plates, and they feel sorry for Mac for all their mistrust of him and their own poverty. And this is perhaps the deepest irony of the play, that Mac is forced to steal a sheep to feed his family, but it is sheep that have created his poverty in the first place. Whether the author's intent was to try to effect change through this portrayal or simply to comment on it isn't clear. His real concern is to promote the message of eternal salvation through faith in God, but the words he gives to his shepherds are visceral and heartfelt. They certainly have his sympathy, but perhaps not an answer that immediately helps their situation. Mac is a professional thief, which is made clear early on. He is established as the trickster of the piece, taking on a role similar to the cunning slave character in Roman comedy. As with those previous examples, the trickster is not only the player of tricks, but can also fall foul of other characters who turn out to be cleverer than he is. 
In this case, he almost gets away with the deceit of the theft of the sheep, but is found out through the compassion of Dor. But Mac is also something of a self-deceiver. His wife produces children on a very regular basis, but he tries to absent himself from any responsibility for them, and he admits that he cannot provide for them by legal means, so as turned to thieving. There is also an air of the supernatural about Mac, as he casts a spell to keep the shepherds sleeping, and is quick to blame a supernatural event to explain the presence of the sheep. Jill, Mac's wife, is clearly not the woman he has been describing. We've heard how she gives birth at least once a year, not uncommon at the time, suggesting that she's strong and fit. When we first see her, she's spinning wool to earn extra money, doing so late at night after her childcare and housewife duties are completed. She's behaving as the woman in charge of the household, and it is she who, while being concerned for her husband's safety, devises the plan to hide the stolen sheep. She is an active partner here, saying that if she could do more to keep up the deceit, she would. She also seems to enjoy deceiving the shepherds, so it's clear that she and Mac are a good partnership. In fact, if anything, Mac comes off looking more than a little shabby in her presence. So the play is a great example of how the religious message is mixed in with some low comedy for entertainment and not a little social commentary, albeit tied into the religious message. That comes from the shepherds' acceptance of their lot and the way they look toward the future happiness offered by God in the next world. Most of the comedy in the play comes from Mac and Jill with the business of trying to pass off the sheep as a newborn child. This is quite absurdist humour with layers of jokes. When challenged by the shepherds, Jill says... If ever I you beguile that I eat this child that lays in the cradle. She's saying to the shepherds that if she ever tried to fool them, then she would eat the child in the cradle. Crazy to suggest a mother would eat her child, but as the child is in fact a lamb, this is exactly what she and Mac hope to do once the coast is clear. Similarly, Jill calling the sheep as her child a pretty thing and a darling would have given the audience a good chuckle. Jill mentions several times that Mac is at risk of hanging if the theft is discovered, so we're well aware of the high-stakes game he's playing as it plays off against the farcical scene, which was surely played for just that, and hence the incomprehensible choice of punishment is part of the absurdity of the situation. This comes at the end of the second section of the play, just before the section dealing with the biblical story, and we don't see Mac or Jill again. The proximity of the next part of the play highlights that forgiveness is the message of the New Testament and of the silly punishment exacted on Mac in the play. The religious heart of the play is the final section, where all the previous sufferings and absurd comedy is forgotten in the light of the hope of the birth of Jesus gives to the shepherds. They arrive back in their pastures fatigued, with Gib complaining about the weight of the sheep, so it's clear they've carried it back from Mac's cottage. Dor forces them to stop and rest, but as soon as the angel appears, there is no more mention of the wet and the cold and their hunger, or how exhausted they are. They praise the beauty of the angel's song, and are lifted by their belief in the promise of salvation. For once they feel important, as the angel has appeared to them, and not the wealthy or the powerful. After the short walk to Bethlehem, they make offerings to the baby. These aren't biblical, but reflect traditions that have been established over the years. Each has significant symbolism in the same way that the biblical gifts of the Magi do. Cherries symbolise humanity and their colour are a reminder that, as a man, Jesus will shed blood for the good of mankind. The bird recalls the dove, a Christian symbol of peace and divinity, and the ball stands for the orb that symbolises kingship and power. 
The play ends with their declaration of their absolute faith in the promise of salvation. Their misery has been overtaken by feelings of self-worth and purposefulness thanks to their religious beliefs. So whatever the reasons for the dual existence of the shepherds' plays, together they give us several insights into the medieval worldview. Firstly, there's a clear knowledge and appreciation of the life of the common people in Yorkshire of the time. In a satirical mode, we're shown the suffering of the shepherds, their difficulties with the landlords, the plague and, most of all, the weather. Although the biblical account of the shepherds is followed without augmentation in both plays, the author shows a capacity to fuse into the original story richly suggestive folk stories which illustrate the religious interpretation of the events. The author clearly sympathises with the predicaments of the shepherds, but at the same time he shows them as harsh, greedy, selfish and argumentative. They're a powerful example of the corruption of man, But in the second part of the plays, the coarseness of the shepherds is transformed into humanity and humility in the face of God. The division between the parts of the plays is absolutely central in showing the contrast brought by the nativity into the world of man. Corruption through original sin versus the promise of perfection of eternity. The turning point in both cases is the angel's announcement, where the comedy of the first part is set aside. That comedy is used to illustrate the world of suffering through the folly of the shepherds in the first play where human shortcomings and short-sightedness is exposed, again in contrast to the steadfastness of God's plan. The central doctrinal point shows the nativity as the miracle that the shepherds had been looking for, a miracle that will end all of mankind's folly. And I think it's only right to finish on a reminder of the skill of the Wakefield master as author of these plays. His deep biblical learning is evident as is his knowledge of the folk tales and a degree of classical learning. He takes these elements and merges them into his narrative, while retaining a clear train of thought that sets out to establish important traditional religious truths. His shepherds may be low characters who speak in coarse ways, but he conveys through them the teachings of the medieval church. Next time, with more details from the cycle plays, we're going to hell. Not as bad as it sounds, I promise. In the meantime, please visit the podcast website, that's www.thehistoryofeuropeantheatre.com and see more on some of the things we've covered in the last few episodes, including the list of plays and performing guilds from York and the transcript of my review of Sir Ian McKellen's Hamlet and a return to live theatre after more than a year. I'm pleased to say that theatre in the UK is opening up now so we can get back in the room where it happens. Let's hope we don't have to see any such closures again. If things are not going so well where you are, then I hope you'll be in the same position soon. And please, in the meantime, join the Facebook group or follow the podcast on Twitter to get a little fix of theatre and history. If you'd like to support the show, then please post a rating or even a review on Apple Podcasts or go to patreon.com for more content and for a small monthly fee. All contributions go towards offsetting the costs of hosting the podcast and are gratefully received. And now that summer has arrived in the UK, the garret is very hot, so I'm pleased to feel I can put on an extra fan when it's needed, thanks to your support. If you have any questions or comments or concerns, you can always contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. (laughs) 